This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is the writer and biologist Elizabeth Jeffries. We have a wide-ranging conversation about her thoroughly evangelical upbringing, her career in science, her deconstruction of her evangelical beliefs, depression, and how she's working to connect her research into cellular biology with biblical narratives. It's a really great conversation. I've segmented it with uh, more musical breaks than normal, so please let me know if that's something that you like and what you think of the format. It seemed to be appropriate for our conversation. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Anchor at Pod, and you can email me directly at contact at exvangelicalpodcast.com. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. And also, please do me a solid and rate and review the show over on iTunes and let people know, let people know about the show. It's the best way to um, boost the show and make sure more people can hear it. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Exvangelical. I have with me this week Elizabeth Jeffries. She blogs over at Elizabeth Jeffries Write, Elizabeth Jeffries Writes dot com. And is also a um, a biologist, and I'm really happy to have her on. Thank you very much for uh, joining the show, Elizabeth. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, thank you again. Um, so, you write on your blog about um, about a lot about your childhood, and you mentioned there that you grew up in uh, the Pittsburgh area. Um, so, yes. so what was it like uh, growing up in that in that part of the that part of the um, of the country and just let's start there just just with your with your childhood what what was that like Sure yeah so I grew up in Pittsburgh Pennsylvania uh so I grew up in not not quite the city but not quite the suburbs Okay I had a lot of uh, so we we weren't um we weren't exactly isolated in either one of those we were kind of in a in an in between area I grew up in a non-denominational church, which is one of the, I, I, I find it to be one of the code names for evangelicalism, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, um, for so sure. One of the code words. <laughs> we, uh, our church was pastored and, and is still pastored. The, the church is still pastored by family members of mine and my father was on staff for a long time. So my family is was and is deeply involved in in this particular church and the hallmarks of our faith there were literal interpretation of the bible mm-hmm. and uh along with that came a lot a lot of uh, a lot of the typical aspects of evangelicalism creationism was a big deal there and complementarianism, traditional gender roles were a big deal for us. Purity culture, growing up there as a girl, I absorbed this idea that as a female, my body was dangerous, really, was a mm-hmm. source of danger and was a source of problems. And it was my responsibility to 
to remove that source of danger, you know? So I, I, I grew up with this very literal, strict interpretation of the Bible. And a lot, uh, along with that was some very strict, a, a strict interpretation of heaven and hell and a lot of discussion around sin. Hmm. Um, and a lot of re- really what was interpreted on my end as sort of shame and and fear um yeah it, motivation for belief uh as, and maybe that was my perspective as a kid you know growing up in in this environment maybe that was my perspective just for as, uh, as a part of my personality but i interpreted Christianity as a source of shame and a source of fear. I um, I was homeschooled, and my family was very insulated in our in, in our social group in our homeschool social group. And I I find it very insightful, Blake, that you use the word subculture when describing evangelicalism, because it really is more than a branch of Christianity. It's more than a religious set of beliefs. It really is. a Um, And I, I, at least in my experience, I found that to be true. So being homeschooled, I was surrounded by families, middle-class families generally, where there were were two parent families where there was a mom and a dad and the mom stayed home from work. And taught the kids and the dad went to work. Uh, and that was really the picture of a, of a family that I was exposed to. Um, yeah. And that's a, that's a very particular sort of vision of the world, right? It is, it is, it's a very limited. And so it's, it's a false vision of the world. That's not the way that the world really, really looks. And it ends up distorting uh, particularly political views, it becomes very easy to see things only from one point of view. Uh, mm. When the only type of person, the only type of family that you're exposed to, are it is the the person or the family that looks like your own. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it becomes very yeah, like a very self centered kind of you know. Everyone is like me. Everyone looks like me. Um, Kind of just very distorted, you know. Um, but yeah, politically very conservative and not really seeing any reason to look beyond that, not seeing any reason to uh, to consider another point of view. Because again, I, I really didn't grow up around other points of view. And I, religiously, I, I didn't come in contact with really anyone who espoused a different religion or, you know, followed a different religion. I knew one, one family through our homeschooling network that was Jewish. And that was the only, those were literally the only people I knew who weren't Christians, you know? Um, so there, there, uh, there was a lot of insulation at play in my childhood. Hmm. And I'm I'm really struck by a lot of the things that that you've shared and written on your blog, just sort of about mm-hmm. your um, perspective on that experience and the way you sort of describe even being aware of it um, mm-hmm. as as a child. Um, you have one particular story where you 
where you write about using a family prayer list, you know, that it would be something yeah. that you would maintain and catalog and, and date and, um, and cross it out when it was answered. Um, but then right. also there was, uh, an aspect of, uh, financial instability that, that you, um, that, that your family also went through and that you were, yeah. um, sort of keenly aware of that as a, as a, as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. if you don't, uh, if you don't mind talking about that for a little bit and how those sorts of two different dynamics really, um, played out. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so intercessory prayer was a big part of our, of our religious beliefs. We believed, or I, I was taught and my family believed that if we pray for X, then God will answer our prayers and his answer will be in, you know, will, will be, will match our request, so to speak, or his answer will be in, um, in a corresponding measure with our requests. Hmm. So if we are the more righteous and holy we are, and the more selflessly we pray, then the more God will bless us. And I, I, so I, I grew up thinking that and, and really believing that and wanting that to be true. And at times we would pray for a certain thing, you know, pray for a family member to get better if they were sick or something along those lines. And we would see that happen. We, that family member would, would become better. And, um, it, and it would be like, Oh God, you know, God answered our prayers. God heard our prayers. But then there were more these long ranging prayer requests, um, like for financial stability, um, and that, that never seemed to be answered. So there, there was always this question like, well, if, if God does take care of us, if God promises to take care of us, but we don't see provision, then what does that mean about our faith? Are we, you know, are we not holy enough? Are we not pleasing God enough in order to warrant his blessing, you know? Uh, so it, it created, even as a kid, you know, I, as a, as a five, six year old writing down these prayer requests and seeing how fervently my family members believed that these prayer requests would be answered and then watching their responses as things unfolded, you know, if the prayer request was answered, seeing their joy and their excitement and they had, and this renewed trust in God. But then if it was not answered, uh, there was a, just a sense of like, well, God let us down, you know? Uh, so it, it created, cognitive dissonance is definitely the phrase for it. You know, create <laughs> yeah. this sense of disorientation. Uh, if, if God really does take care of us, then what about this situation now? Uh, it, and the, and, uh, the religious environment that I was in was, it, kind of, it sought to create an airtight, worldview, you know, an airtight Hmm. view of the world where everything that happens has an explanation. Everything 
You know, um, everything that we observe, everything that happens to other people has an explanation. Either we'll see it now or we'll see it someday or we'll never see it and we just trust God and then there's an explanation. (laughs) Uh, But it, it creates this, it creates fear, it creates suspicion of, you know, suspicion of yourself. Am I not good enough for God to bless me? in this particular way? Am I, you know, what, what about this person over here who seems to be receiving these blessings that I've been asking God for, for years, you know, and, and they, and they seem to effortlessly just have this, um, you know, have, have this, uh, success or stability that I've been asking for. Uh, so yeah, as a kid, that that was one of the you know one of the first cogs in the wheel that started to make me say like, wait, something here doesn't add up. Something, you know, the reality the reality that I see is not so airtight as to fit into this you know into this perfect explanation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, a couple of other guests have talked to about talked and sort of using phrases like um being sold a false bill of goods or something like that Um, and that that sort of sense that and whenever you're a kid and you're wrestling with (laughs) um injustice yeah (laughs) um, yeah exactly (laughs) it's not it's not easy for um you know for a five five or six year old to as uh to wrestle with you know the rain falls on the just and the unjust it's not easy yeah. for a, for an adult to <laughs> to right, wrestle with those right. things so but when whenever <laughs> whenever you're you know clued into it or you start to notice it at that um that early of an age it's got to be you know very very <laughs> heavy um yeah for a sensitive just kid <laughs> right right mm-hmm um, you also talk about um, in some of your writings, and you mentioned just just brief, just briefly before, just talking about the, all the different hallmarks of your um, of your childhood, about how it was really geared towards this idea. Um, it was presented, or or you felt it was presented around not being good enough, not being mm-hmm. um, uh, about your sin being paramount, um, questioning right. your your value essentially. Um, and then you also talk about sitting in the sanctuary you write about sitting in the sanctuary while very young when these when other children your age are you know at kids church um and then that mm-hmm. that even being you're processing uh, you write what if what happens if i make a mistake or if i really have to go to the bathroom or if i feel sick am i not holy anymore right. <laughs> what if i break the rules or make a mistake um so you were feeling all these things at um a really early age was that something was that all internalized or did you feel the freedom or the comfort to to share those things with with other people or um what was it what was that part of um this wrestling you started at a very early age um yeah were you doing it alone or were you or were you able to um talk to people about that yeah, most mostly internal, mostly uh, mostly just an internal wrestling, and I think that's that's the that's part of what's so toxic about shame is it you know the, those of us who have internalized shame mm-hmm. we it it perpetuates itself because 
the the lie is you're the only one you you are the only one who feels this way and if that you know if, if you believe that then it's very hard to ever verbalize it you know um it's very hard to ever express it because what you know what if everyone else it, i i remember just seeing the the world around me seeing the the christian world around me and thinking everyone else is in on some secret everyone else just believes all of this so effortlessly <laughs> and I'm the only one on the outside, you know, I'm the only one who wonders if, you know, if my, uh, if my sin is going to keep me, you know, keep me out of, uh, out of heaven really was what, you know, what was what I was focused on at that age. Um, so that, yeah, it, I mean, shame is self perpetuating. It's a cycle. And starting at, at that age, I found myself just beginning to get stuck in that cycle um, of shame and silence and telling myself that I was the only one who felt that way. Um, and we, it, my, my church, when I was in junior high, uh, for several years in a row, my church put on a Christian haunted house. Um, <laughs> I've heard of these. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been Thank to one. <laughs> yeah. So ours, um, ours was, it was called hell stop and it was a walkthrough haunted house. We, we performed it, uh, several weekends surrounding Halloween every year. And everyone in the church either acted in it or was part, you know, was part of the counseling afterwards, something along those lines. Um, but it, it, it was a, a shame driven gospel presentation. It was a, a, a gospel driven by fear and shame, hmm. um, which I, I is not the true gospel in my opinion. Um, but, but at the time as a 12 and 13 year old acting in this haunted house and going through these motions, I, it, as a part of the production, there is a, uh, there's a, a car accident that's performed. And then a, a teenager who died in the car accident goes before the judgment throne of God and is sent to hell ultimately. And I, like I acted in this production as the teenager who gets sent to hell, who is before the judgment throne of God and, and gets sent to hell. Uh, I mean, probably 30, 40, 50 times a night, every night for, (laughs) three weekends in a row surrounding Halloween every year. Uh, and, and going, you know, at that age, you're 11 or 12 going through these motions, even you, it burns itself into your mind and it, and it creates. So you, you just develop such a strong fear, such a strong shame. And it's, it's like, you know, repetitively telling yourself, don't end up in this situation. Don't let yourself end up in this situation. Um, and I, it, it, it's, it's taken me a long time to really unravel 
how uh, how influential that uh, that acting um, production was in forming my ideas of what God is like, you know, and from my perspective, acting in that, in that haunted house, God was a cruel judge, a merciless judge who doesn't care about all the good things you've done and doesn't care about any of the efforts you've made. If you are not, you know, if if you haven't asked Jesus into your heart and served him truly, whatever that means, by the way, (laughs) Um, then you're you're not going to heaven. So it it was like it was just very fear inducing. Um, is yeah. it, that that's really um, that's, the way it was. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, most Halloween is just playing at that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> right. But when you internalize the actual fear of hell and damnation, that's uh, real scary shit. <laughs> yeah. It, Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and and my like my family members were acting in this as well. It was like a it, everyone that I knew, you know, was in this production. It was immersive. It was just completely immersive, hmm. um, and it formed it, it formed my beliefs about God at this very formative, impressionable stage yeah. of my life, you know? Um, right. If tonight you stood in heaven's court to seek eternal favor, would you face Jesus Christ as judge or would you face him as your savior? There are many who don't quite know for sure what that verdict would be if ever. So let's imagine for a moment you're standing dead center in the courtroom of forever. Um, so if you if you feel free to talk about this, you mentioned that you had like family members involved in this church still to this day. It's a continuing um, place and everything. So uh, right. I'll leave this up to your discretion. But I'm just kind of a little more curious. Uh, mention, you mentioning that as far as um, the other sorts of aspects of the church. Um, you mentioned that there was complementarianism, um, that it was non-denominational. So I'm, uh, I mm-hmm. may assume I'm assuming that it might have been self-governed with no other real. Yes. Uh, okay, so yeah, um, so no external accountability outside of its own authority. Um, uh, so the interesting thing to me um, about these sorts of conversations and the thing that's the things that um, make these stories relatable to other people is that there's a lot of those commonalities. But mm-hmm. it's very uh, you know there people grew up in these uh, disconnected communities um, that are very internal. There's complementarianism. There's uh, you know gender inequality. Um, but they all play out in different ways and the systems work in sort of different ways and they have different right. effects on people. So um, right. if you're, if you feel free to, um, mm-hmm. if you, again, use your discretion, I'm, I'm not here to put you in an uncomfortable spot. Um, right. um, what were the other more general, the other dynamics, um, around that 
time when when you were impressionable that were going on in the church? Were you in a youth group? Um, what sort of messages were taught? Um, and just more generally, like the sorts of people that 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 you participated in those things with. Sure, sure. Yeah. So the the leadership of the church is independent. None of the pastors have gone to any any form of seminary or any theological training of any sort. Um, so just completely self-educated and self-governed, um, which is, you know, it, it leaves a lot of room for some crazy interpretations of the Bible, um, especially when the Bible is viewed as a, as a text that can be interpreted literally in modern modern time and modern language, (laughs) (laughs) which is extremely problematic in itself. You know, that the Bible was written by a multitude of authors across a great span of time and across a a span of cultures. And our culture today is nothing like any of those cultures. Uh, Right. it's very, you know, it's problematic. Very, that's right. It's highly problematic. Uh, but the government of the church was completely independent. And uh, the the church, it, one, one aspect that sunk in for me very, uh, very deeply, probably because I am female, was the, the idea of gender roles and complementarianism. So women were not permitted to speak in front of the church on a Sunday morning. Uh, we're not permit, permitted to preach in it in any way. And we're not permitted to be a part of the church government or the church leadership in any way. It was not, e- not even something that would be entertained as an idea. And more, more than that, as a girl, I was told very often that I, I was created for a very specific purpose. I was created to be a helper to men, <laughs> right? Um, which, you know, it, it, you, you can say that women and men are equal all you want, but if you tell me that I was created to be a helper um, to, to men, uh, then that, that automatically creates unequal ground, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so... So even as as a little girl, uh, I was told essentially just what you know not not told explicitly, and it wasn't as though I was you know telling my parents that I wanted to be a pastor, but I you know I was implicitly it was it was demonstrated for me that women are not supposed to have roles of leadership or or roles independent of men. Um, and again, being surrounded, I, I mean, almost exclusively by families with two parents, uh, the, there were very few single, uh, you know, adult single women in our church. Most people would get married at a pretty young age so this created a lot of pressure during adolescence. You know, if, if you, if you're really serving God, then you will be 
married by, you know, by your early twenties. And if you're really serving God, then, you know, then, um, then you'll have a man in your life. Like these, you know, these things were not explicitly, it wasn't as though there was some list, you know, these weren't like in the bylaws or something, but they were exemplified. And as a kid, you observe these things, you, you pick up like, Oh, you know, no, no adult women are single. No adult women have jobs outside of the home if they have children, um, these kinds of things. And, and I, you know, I, there, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Um, but I didn't see my own personal identity, uh, independent, of marriage or family, just my own individual identity. I did not see that as, as, as a, a dignified identity. Um, Mm. I, I saw my identity as, as a, as incomplete, you know, my, um, my existence really as incomplete as a, as a single girl growing up with I mean, even in high school when, you know, it, it's not like I would have been married anyway, um, or, you know, or would have, or, or would have been allowed to date because that was also forbidden. But, um, but there was an understanding that my identity was only going to complete, going to be complete if I was married, you know? Hmm. Um, so that, that sunk in very deeply for me. Um, and I also, I, I knew from a pretty young age that I wanted to be a scientist and I knew I wanted to go to grad school and I knew that I didn't want to have the the types of jobs that I saw exemplified for me, um, in my church, that the types of jobs that, that adult women had in my church. So I didn't really see myself reflected, um, in, in my culture, you know, Hmm. I didn't see myself reflected in my environment. Um, so it, that, you know, it, it, I think that also just comes back to the, the subculture idea when there is, is such an isolated insular group with very little coming and going, you know, very little, um, exposure to anything outside of itself, uh, then kids who are growing up in that culture who don't really see themselves represented within it are going to feel like outsiders, you know, or going to feel deficient, um, in some way. Yeah. Uh, so that, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. on that last point. Yeah. I think, it'll, I mean, you sort of get shell shocked when you enter in the quote real world, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. But right. yeah, that sounds like a really, um, not really sort of noxious combination of shame about yeah. about your about yourself about feeling deficient because you are you were a girl you were born a girl. I mean, right. Right. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I I um I get. <laughs> Uh, sometimes I have to take a minute <laughs> to, to take mm-hmm. people's stories and, um, cause that's, I mean, that's, that's a lot to, for a young person to bear. Um, and, um, 
And it's, I mean, it's, it's certainly a burden. Um, mm-hmm. And now one that is easily put down. You mentioned that you wanted to be a scientist. Um, yeah. And then you knew that from a very early age. Um, you also, you said earlier that you were homeschooled. Um, were you homeschooled through high school or? Um, yeah. Okay. You yeah. Were. Um, and then what, what got you interested in science? I, uh, really from the time I was really little, I, when the first time that I asked my mom what the stars are in the sky, I asked my mom, you know, what, what are those what are those sparkles in the sky? And she told me that they are suns of, you know, very far away suns. And I, I just, I was hooked from that. <laughs> point on. I thought whoever the people are who figure out what the world is made of and what is going on in the <laughs> world, I want to be one of those people. Um, so I, I just kind of fell in love with with science as a really little kid. I was really into astronomy for a long time, and I was really into uh, math. I was really into physics and biology and chemistry. And around sixth grade or so, I met a friend of my brother's who he knew at college who was studying to become a biomedical researcher and I thought that sounds really cool and (laughs) and uh, and so that's when I decided I I wanted to do some type of medical research uh pursue some type of medical research field and that's where I am now so I I uh kind of it's kind of just been a a long a long love affair with science (laughs) that's great that's great I'm I'm married to a science scientist but I'm the I'm the history and English guy, so, um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm married to an immunologist, so, um, so yeah, yeah, uh, I, I have the utmost respect for, for scientists, people that do, uh, you know, bench work and all that sort of stuff, because that, you know, Mm. it literally pushes the world forward, (laughs) but, um, Mm -hmm. um, where did you decide to go to college? Yeah, so I, um. <clears throat> towards the towards the end of high school I started I, I started like taking some I took some community college courses in science and I started to meet some people who who didn't uh, believe that the Bible is completely literally or is capable is able to be interpreted literally you know mm-hmm. um which is it still is is like shocking to me that that I was so um, isolated growing up that I had never met a person who didn't also share this belief. But at the end of high school, I started to meet people who saw things differently, and I started to kind of give the Bible a little bit of a suspicious, you know, a suspicious side eye. Basically, <laughs> I started. To- maybe this isn't, you know, maybe this isn't like the only way of seeing the world. It started 
to sound weird and it started to sound antiquated. Uh, but I, you know, I, I didn't, again, this was all internal. This wasn't really anything that I expressed. Um, college, I went to a public university in Pennsylvania and I, my, my parents really wanted me to go to a Christian school. Mm-hmm. Um, but they gave me their kind of their blessing to go to a public university on the condition that I would go to a church that that they had chosen every Sunday um, and that I would be a part of the college ministry at this church so that that was their kind of their middle ground, their compromise <laughs> with you can go, you can go to this public university, but you have to go to uh, this church that we picked. And, and they checked up on me, you know, they asked me uh, all the time how, how church was going and how college ministry was going. And I did, I I went to this church and um, I went to the college ministry. I met most of my friends in college uh, at, especially at first, most of my friends were a part of this church. So it, you know, it, I, I was at a public school. It was a big school. I had, I had contact with all kinds of people, but my little friend group was again, pretty isolated and pretty, it was, it it was easy. I created a way for myself to be isolated, you know, um, in this group. Hmm. However, uh, my roommate, my freshman year roommate was an atheist and she was a nicer person than I was. (laughs) 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 She she was really kind and she was really committed to her, um, to her work. She was a really hard worker and wanted to, she wanted to get a degree in history so that she could work in museums. And she had this incredible passion for museums and preserving history and teaching kids about history. Um, and, and so I, this was like a little, it, it, it was like a, almost like a, a red flag on my, on my religious beliefs. Like, <laughs> you know, you're, you don't actually have it completely figured out here because here's a person who doesn't believe in any of this stuff. And yet she's reaching all of these conclusions that like that you haven't even reached, like you're not, you know, you're not even this developed and, um, putting other people ahead of yourself in this way. Mm. So, so experiences like that in college, again, um, continued this process of me questioning my strict interpretation of Christianity um, and, and several of my courses too, I had some awesome professors who, uh, I had a philosophy professor in particular and a cultural anthropology professor, a history professor, all, all of these people, uh, led some engaging discussions that started the ball rolling in, um, in the sense of causing me to question or, or ca- causing me to realize that religion is not the only source of morality in the world. Mm-hmm. And throughout history, there have been just so many different interpretations of Christianity itself, let alone 
world religions, you know, let, let alone the incredible diversity of, of religions across time and space. Uh, so, so these thing, these courses just open my eyes, you know, uh, open my eyes to everything that that's out there. Um, but again, I, I was keeping a lot of this internalized and I, I hinted at, at some things when I was home from college during Thanksgiving break of my freshman year. I told my parents that, that I wasn't really sure that the Bible or, or that, that I didn't really see a reason why the Bible had to be taken literally. Mm. And that did not go over well. <laughs> and I, and I realized like at that point I was like, Oh, this needs to be something that I, I need to keep this inside. I need to Ooh. deal with this. Um, which, which is not the healthiest way to deal with, uh, you know, to deal with these questions. Right. Yeah. And so the, the, um, the struggle for me, you know, right. So you, and you already have internalized shame. Now you're internalizing some doubt about the reasons that are giving you shame. Um, yes. So did that, and the, sorry, the the itself was also a source of incredible shame, uh, because the, the answer that was given to me when I, you know, when I started to tiptoe into, into doubt territory, I I was given the, the answer of, well, you just aren't, you aren't, your faith isn't strong enough. You need to pray harder and you need to believe harder. You, you know, you need to commit yourself to these beliefs um, so the, it, it just is cyclical, you know, yeah. shame and, doubt, um, want to keep themselves inside and they want to feed on each other. Yeah. This is this is kind of an off the cuff question, but um, you're you're at a um, <laughs> you're at a public university. Um, did you cut loose at all? You know, did you did, did you? I don't know. Um, you're an adult at that point. I know that you know adulthood is sort of stretched out in Western culture, um, and adolescence is stretched out. But you um, you have opportunities to exercise your own agency um, at college that you don't have at home. Um, did you, right. did you, um, keep, did you keep maintaining this sort of code of ethics or did you, I, you know, I'm, I'm tiptoeing around. Did you mm-hmm. like, did you drink? Do you, did you do mm-hmm. other things that, um, are very common at uh, public schools and just brushed under the rug at Christian schools? Right, right. I, yeah, I mean, to a, to a degree, I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't say like, I, I, I never really like really let loose. Um, but I did definitely, I mean, uh, well, I'll put it this way. I did a lot of things that I was raised to never do. (laughs) (laughs) And having been raised in such a, uh, conservative limited environment, 
I mean, there's a long list of things you can't do. So I think like by public university standards, I think I was a very tame person. Um, But by my standards, you know, by the standards that I had grown up with, I was really pushing, uh, pushing a lot of boundaries. So yeah, there, you know, there was some exercise of freedom. um, And there, there was just a lot of internal tension for me at that stage. Um, uh, I was still going to church, but didn't really know why. And when I would, if I would really get honest with my church friends, then I, you know, it would come out that I wasn't really sure about, uh, you know, I wasn't really like into all of this Christianity stuff the way that they were. Um, But if I would be honest with my friends who weren't Christians, it would become clear that I, that there was something still drawing me, you know, to, uh, to go to church and to, to be involved in the, in the Christian world. Um, so a a lot of tension, a lot of internal tension, you know, um, and, and again, the shame cycle, it was fed by, any type of boundary pushing that, Mm -hmm. you know, that, uh, like if, you know, just even, uh, drinking after I was 21, you know, drinking when I was of legal age, that was, I mean, that was something that if, if my, if my, I, you know, I, I just had this dread, like, Oh, if my church friends would know (laughs) I was doing, you (laughs) know, um, they, they would never accept me again. You know, uh, they would never be my friend again. And at the, just this intense shame that I would feel. But meanwhile, my, you know, my friends who weren't in our church group were looking at me like, uh, Beth, you have one drink, you know, like what's wrong? (laughs) You're no fun. (laughs) So, uh, so kind of feeling like feeling like I didn't, you know, you, you feel like you don't fit in anywhere when you're in that right. transition stage. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so just not, not sure where I belonged. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and another guest, uh, used a great term that I've, I've used a lot since. And he said it was, you feel weird everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you from there, you, you know, you're in school. You, you then you go, um, knowing your story from your website, you you more things life goes on. You go, mm-hmm. you go into grad school to get your PhD. Um, mm-hmm. you get married. Um, mm-hmm. during all this time, um, is there any sort of singular moment where where there was like a where it felt like there was a collapse or mm-hmm. um, or was it more just sort of piece by piece? Uh, uh, a, a, mm-hmm. a common term that people use these days is like deconstruction. You're deconstructing the faith yeah. that, that you were brought up with. Um, and I, for some people, there is a collapse. And for others, it's just, you know, death by a thousand cuts sort of thing. Um, right. So over that next stage of your life, how um, you continue to wrestle with these internal um, contradictions, really, um, mm-hmm. of, your, of like your what you feel you actually actually believe and then what you're supposed to believe. How does that play out? 
Right, right. So, so in my case, it was it, so it was more of a death by a thousand cuts, a gradual deconstruction over. I mean, over several years. It it wasn't until the uh, the end of grad school for me that uh, that I really was that I that I externally said I. I can't be a part of this anymore. This, you know, that this religious expression is not for me. Um, so what ended up catalyzing my, you know, my deconstruction or my, my break with evangelicalism was the Supreme Court same-sex marriage ruling um, mm. in summer of 2015. So, so over the years that, that I was in grad school, um, I, I kept going to churches, um, and slowly like my, my sense of shame really intensified and my, my, my health, my mental health started to deteriorate, started to struggle with a lot of depression and suicidal ideation. I struggled with disordered eating, uh, for, for a long time. And I, I kind of credit that I, growing up, I was around a lot of discussion of gluttony and the sin of gluttony. And I, for, for whatever reason, I, I latched onto that. And then in my early twenties, it became, it became a really big problem, uh, for me. So I was struggling with all of these things, all these like personal issues that were rooted in just shame and self-hatred, um, rooted, you know, root, rooted in doubt about myself and doubt about who God was and feeling as though I had to put on a face to or really live a lie to be in my church environment. Hmm. Um, but I, I kept, you know, I kept this up. I, I, I don't think I really knew any other way. And I wasn't really certain that, you know, that, that things could change or that things could get better. But in the summer then of 2015, this is right after I defended my dissertation. So I, um, I was done with grad school and this summer, my husband and I took a long road trip. We uh, took a road trip across the country. I was done with grad school and he's a teacher, so he has summers off and we really just like dug in that summer. We went all over the place, traveled a ton, um, which was awesome and gave us a lot of time to think. And while we were on that trip, the Supreme Court ruling, um, came out on same sex marriage. And I watched my church friends just like enter a state of mourning really. Um, and you know, just <laughs> like so, um, upset and forlorn over the legalization of same sex marriage. And I realized I, I couldn't pretend anymore to be a part of a culture that, that would mourn the legalization of same-sex marriage, um, especially having I, um, I I didn't mention this, but I, I there were people close to me who grew up 
in my church environment um, who went through conversion therapy and and just went through a lot of trauma because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and having watched that, yeah, uh, you know, having watched the pain and the trauma that that came about as a result of you know of of failing to see just human dignity of failing to see, um, you, you know, uh, the value of every person. Um, I, I couldn't, I could no longer be a part of it. You know, I, I could no longer, uh, show up on Sunday mornings and, and sing along to these songs when I knew that, that I, I, I had so far departed from, from what this movement was. Mm-hmm. Um, so that uh, that was it for me. That that ruling came, um, you know. That that ruling occurred while my husband Mark, while while we were on our road trip, and we were just like, you know what? We're not like we're not whatever Christian America is. <laughs> right? We are not it. You know, we're we're not in this. Uh, so we, uh, we decided to kind of break off and, um, and I, I, I was glad we lost very few friendships in this whole process, um, which I was glad of, I was glad we didn't have to, you know, completely like obliterate relationships, although there, there were, um, some that needed to just end, you know, mm-hmm. um, but but anyway, I at this point I, I told my husband I said you know what I'm I'm done with church, you know you, you do what you want but I I can't um, go to church anymore. Uh, but I agreed to try one more, <laughs> and the, part of the reason I agreed to try it uh, was that it doesn't even identify itself as a church; it identifies itself as a faith community. Um, and I thought, well, that sounds a little more, you know, hippy dippy. So, (laughs) Uh, but we have found, we've found a, a community in our area. If there are any, any local Pittsburghers, it's hot metal bridge faith community. And there are pastors who are ordained in PC USA. There are pastors ordained in the United Methodist church who, who serve as a part of this faith community. Uh, but one of my first Sundays there, a member of the church spoke about how she is so grateful for this community because she is an atheist and she still feels welcome to to come and be a part of the community ministry um, that occurs at, at this church. And they, they are deeply committed to social justice, deeply committed to works of compassion and charity and they have a, a huge ministry to the homeless community in Pittsburgh, and it, they they do some really incredible service work in the community. Mm, that's um, great. So, I, yeah, it's been it's been wonderful to find this group in um, in my community amidst the amidst the break with evangelical Christianity. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I'm having a little bit of a BBC dad moment. My my daughter is coming up to talk to me for just one second. Sure. <laughs>
<laughs> Sorry, my, my daughter asked uh, <laughs> if she could watch a show. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> <Got it. No problem. laughs> um, yeah, that I mean that that sounds like a um, really a breath of fresh air as far as community changes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because uh, we um, just just to share a, a similar story real fast. We we sure. we were at a, a self governed church that we loved because of the people. But even though my wife and I um, were fairly liberal, very liberal in comparison to the the um, the pastors there and everything, we stayed because we loved the community um, for a very long time. Despite those disagreements, when we eventually had to leave, um, mm-hmm. we went to a church that um, that is really well known in the Chicago area. Um, called um, Reba Church and it's like an intentional community sort of thing um, and being able to see like women being full full participants um, yeah. it's like uh, that alone felt um, revolutionary and I yes. um, you know that sort of uh, that that sort of feeling um, is is really um, pretty amazing and I I know that there if if there's someone on the other side that's thinking, oh, people like this are just like, um, you know, become hippies or whatever. <laughs> like, um, yeah. there's, uh, there's something to the experience and <laughs> I welcome anyone, yeah. uh, anyone to experience it for themselves going from a conservative, um, place to, um, quote, more liberal, more liberal one, because it, it <laughs> it's a, it's a freeing experience and a, and a, a wide variety of ways. <laughs> right. And I, you know, I, it's allowed me to go through this deconstruction process mm-hmm. without having to throw out the baby with the bathwater, yeah. you know, like I, I, I can still, I can still search for wisdom in biblical texts and I, without embracing all of the crazy, you know, that, that I grew up with, I, I can still (laughs) find inspiration even from theological leaders or, you know, or, or historical theologians that that's been an awesome experience learning about, um, interpretations of Christianity that I never would have been exposed to within a strict evangelical, world sure. you know. um, <laughs> yeah these, these expressions and it's been so fruitful and it's been so um it's it's made my faith it's given my faith a new life i mean really a, a life for the first time you know uh, that it never had before I, and so i yeah absolutely i i i would I would hope, you know, for anyone going through this type of process that, that if, you know, if, if someone feels ready to be around other faith leaning, Christ leaning people, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) if you're, if you're able to find a, a, an inclusive community like this, um, it, you know, I, I would think it, it, it's been incredibly beneficial for me. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I totally agree also that, um, that there's a whole host of Christian traditions that have been, um, overlooked, especially, um, just over the last, um, over the last hundred so years of evangelicalism. Um, 
evangelicalism mm-hmm. is sort of and it is in many ways ahistorical. It, it's not connected to its roots. Um, it's not con- right, connected. Right. And um, Diana Butler Bass, the author, um, she's a mm. she's a wonderful author. She has a term for it um, for this um, quote more progressive sort of strain of Christianity as generative Christianity, which I absolutely love. And I like I keep trying to throw it out there because it's like I want that term to to latch on. <laughs> yeah, um, I love that um, because it, it's very much what you're talking about of discovering um, spirituality within the Christian. Um, Right. Christian um, history and and Christian faith that that can resonate with our modern predicaments. I really like um, what you mentioned about biblical wisdom. You, you've mentioned that on your site too, and in our correspondence, that you are seeking to explore both biblical wisdom and biological behavior. Um, so, how does how does that overlap? Um, how does that overlap come about? Where, where do you see the connections there? Right, right. So, I, uh, I, as I've been going through this process, right, I've also been working as a biologist. I work in cell biology. And I, I, I've i maintained kind of, a, you know, an interest in the Bible, an interest in biblical themes, biblical patterns, and uh, biblical wisdom. And as I as I've gone through this process, I can't I can't really help but see nature see biology in a different way. And I've been working to develop some writing along these lines. And I have an essay coming out in Presbyterians Today, which is the publication through the PCUSA. Um, This essay will will explore uh, some some of this work or some of these parallels. So I'll, I'll give an example because I think this is an example is the best way to explain. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, the, the kind of the parallels that I see. So I I study cell biology, and in graduate school I worked on DNA repair. So DNA repair is the way that that cells repair fl- uh, flaws in their DNA. So mutations occur, DNA breaks occur, lesions of, of all sorts will occur in the, in the physical DNA strand, and cells need to have a way to fix these flaws. And when I, when I first started reading about DNA repair, it sounded like this perfect parallel for essentially for like redemption, you know, like uh, these things are broken and along comes the cell and fixes all of the broken things. Um, and any of these broken things, the mutations, the breaks in DNA strands, any of those can lead to disease. They can lead to cancer. They can lead to terrible problems. You know, any of these issues can be detrimental. So I, when I first started approaching that work, I, 
I was approaching it from, um, you know, from my background, which was very shame driven, very sin based, where flaws are a problem, flaws are not supposed to occur, and flaws are are something that are something that's wrong with you, you know, mm-hmm. where like a flaw is a sin, you know. <laughs> yeah, we're supposed to be perfect, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> the, the perspective that I had on on myself was I'm supposed to be perfect. God wants me to be perfect. God created me to be perfect, just like Jesus. But along I came and I messed it all up. Um with my sin. So, so that, that was the, the perspective that, that I came with. Um, but as I start, as I continued studying DNA repair, I came across a paper that stated that, that any cell can experience up to 1 million DNA lesions, DNA breaks per cell per day. So these things occur constantly. Um, DNA breaks occur all the time, just as a as a part of the normal life of the cell. And they're really to think of a DNA break as an error. It really doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. DNA breaks are normal. They are uh, to be expected, and it would be more abnormal if no. If, if no breaks occurred in, in a DNA strand. Hmm. Uh, so that this started to really shift the way that I thought about flaws, the way that I thought about sin in general, um, and, and also the way that a cell fixes DNA breaks. Um, there, there is a, there's a huge tool set that a cell has in order to fix DNA breaks. Sometimes the the break is just sort of glued back together. Sometimes a mutation is is reversed so that the, you know, goes back to what it was before the mutation. Uh, So sometimes it is fixed outright, but other times the area where the break occurs or the area where the the flaw in the DNA strand occurs, sometimes that area is just flagged by the cell. It's marked by the cell so that it will be bypassed in subsequent DNA replication. So in certain cases, all that the cell needs to do is be aware of itself, essentially, Hmm. you know, (laughs) just be sensitive to itself. Um, And, and sometimes the you know, that that error doesn't need to be fixed. It just needs to be reconciled with its environment. Um, and the cell, it, the cell develops an, a self-awareness. Um, <laughs> That's really I, great. <laughs> I find this to be so eye-opening. Um, and especially having been, going, going back to evangelicalism as a subculture, Having been raised in one particular subculture, it, I, I find that I need ways to spark my imagination to think about biblical truths differently or to think about like wisdom 
differently, mm. to think about life differently. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, and this is, this is why I love traveling. This is why I love reading about history, reading about anthropology. This is, you know, this is why, um, I love experiencing other cultures, but this need for imagination is also why I love biology. This is also why I, I love science, um, because you see it, you see cells behaving in certain ways. You see, um, you see cells behaving in communities at times. You see reciprocity. Uh, you see cooperation, um, and and it enables me to to view nature in a different light. It enables me to view it then also human behavior in a different light. Um, so that that's the the type of parallel that that I'm interested in tracing. Yeah, that's really fascinating. <laughs> awesome. Uh, that's that's really very fascinating. <laughs> it, yeah, it's a it, as I like I, you know I, I was very like deeply immersed in my um, like my spiritual um, deconstruction, my you know my break with uh, with my church. I was very immersed in that as I was also immersed in biology and I, I kind of, the the two sort of started to bleed into each other um, and feed off of one another in the, in this really beautiful way so I um, this is a a, a series of, um, of what what will become essays um, so that um, exploring these parallels between, what I would call natural wisdom or biological, biological patterns, um, and biblical wisdom. Um, so this can certainly be, will be found on my blog, um, and on my Twitter feed. Yeah. In the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's really great. I, um, I, I, I really like your point about, um, about in a, in a way, um, sort of, redeeming the stories that were initially um the the stories are there um and they're yeah. deep inside they're deep inside our, the shared imagination of people that that come from our background <clears throat> but absolutely um, but they're more malleable than we give them credit for um yes. so you found a way yeah. you found a way to um to reconcile them in and in a really fascinating way and that'll be really great to to read uh, once once you publish them and um and I'll be sure to point people to that as well life is made out of cells cells make copies of themselves copies of and they make copies of themselves copies and they make copies of themselves different cells have different jobs but they all have one
I want to pivot a little bit um, and sort of uh, go back to uh, go back to your go back to the writing that you've already published. Um, yeah, uh, which is part of a, a project that you have called "How to Stay Alive" uh, on your mm-hmm. website, and as as a central component of it, it really addresses um, depression. As you mentioned earlier, um, some suicidal ideations and um, some very um, sensitive things, uh, but you do it in a very uh, you you write in a very persuasive way about these topics. Um, and one of the things you one of the things you you talk about um, you you do have a post about what your what a counselor you're seeing termed cosmic depression. Um, right. <laughs> this, this overwhelming sense of absurdity, <laughs> really. Um, <laughs> right. Um, right. And uh, I'll share a couple of things. I, I I did cherry pick these from a couple of different, um, uh, a couple of different posts. But there's one where you mention where you're talking about sort of the the absurdity of um, the day to day. You say. Uh, my life is now yeah. a list, a long list of responsibilities, and there's some bears no particular meaning. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, that's really, you know, very resonant resonant for uh, anyone um, anyone that's that's an adult that has to do some shitty chore, <laughs> like or right. spends a <laughs> spends a Saturday, um, you know, just picking up because that's what they need to do, <laughs> but. And then adding that to a never-ending list, um, but then you also talk about um, how your your uh, psychologist talked about how your depression isn't situational; it's not typically a generalized depression. Um, that y- you say, "I know exactly why I'm depressed because life is empty and purposeless," um, and that mm-hmm. um, that's that's an yet another sort of. Thing that uh, talking to you um, for this hour or so feels like that there's another tension there, um, a sort of thing that you're holding in tension uh, in juxtaposition to these amazing sorts of connections you're making with Bible narratives and cellular biology. Um, you also have an impending sense of, um, of right. just general uh, being aware that <laughs> of how minute we are in the overall universe. <laughs> um, um, right. So how, um, how do you experience that? Uh, the, these are all very open-ended questions. I just sort of want to, to let you tell your story yeah. about how you, um, how, how you, uh, work through that part of your life. Um, oh. and you, and your, your approach on your, on your blog is to just embrace, the vulnerability of, of being that. Um, right. but I'd love to hear, I'd, I'd love to hear how, how you, um, incorporate that part of your life. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so this also came, uh, kind of came to a head at, at the point that I graduated from grad school. So when I defended my dissertation, I found myself, really just living what had always been my dream, my dream life. Um, I had a PhD, which was exactly what I wanted since I was in sixth grade. Um, I was married to a really great person who treats me very well. 
We owned a house in a suburb of Pittsburgh. I loved my neighborhood. On the outside, everything in my life was exactly what I wanted it to be. Um, And I remember hearing a quote. um, I I think it may have been from Jim Carrey, uh, but a, a quote from some actor who said, that he wished everyone, it was when, when he was receiving an award and he said, I wish everyone could achieve their dreams. And that way you would know exactly how empty they are. Something along those lines. (laughs) And I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm butchering the quote, but the idea, I, it just articulated exactly what I was feeling at that point. Uh, you reach this point where you have, you know, you've gotten exactly what you've been working toward. And then you, you know, the dust settles and you say, well, now what, you know, what, what else is there in life? Um, and life, the, the absurdity of the mundane started to become so apparent to me as the noise of finish, finish, finish grad school started. (laughs) The noise of work, 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 work. It'll be worth it when you graduate. As that noise started to die down, I was left with emptiness, just a, a lot of emptiness. Um, and then also a lot around this time, my grandfather passed away hmm. and this was the first time that I had truly watched someone pass away and the, just the frailty of life, the, bre- the brevity of life was so obvious to me. Um, at this stage, it was just tangibly obvious. The the fact that we're here for such a brief amount of time um, became so apparent. Uh, so I, I found myself in in a in a place where I I had kind of dipped in and out of this mental state before this point, but I found myself immersed in it uh, at this point in my life. Right after I had graduated from from grad school. I was just overwhelmed by how um, how brief our lives are and how everyone around me seemed to be doing something that they felt was so important. You know, everyone around me seemed to be in such a, just such a hurry and it, and so, um, so focused on X, Y, or Z. And I, I just, I felt like I could see right through it. I felt like every goal that I have, once I reach it, there's just going to be another goal. You know, what every, um, every achievement that I can dream of, once I reach it, there's just going to be, you know, something else coming after it. Every workday, that I finish and I'm so relieved I you know I'm done with my work I can go home it guess what it just starts right back up again and it all seemed to be building to nothing um other I mean other than death 
you know, just the, the emptiness of everything became so evident to me. And I, and I do think that this ties in with my upbringing, um, and the loss that I experienced when I when I broke with that worldview that I that I grew up with, when you're taught that that there is one thing, the Bible, and its literal interpretation that matters in the world, it, once you start to fall away from that, um, you know, I, I I had already established in my mind that there was nothing in the, in the universe that was meaningful outside of Jesus. And then Hmm. my idea of Jesus started to crumble and just everything, my entire sense of meaning started to crumble. My, you know, my entire sense of orientation started to crumble as well. So this was a a really dark time for me. Uh, and I, I ended up seeing, I, uh, started seeing a, a psychologist who I still see, and I am incredibly grateful for her. She actually is a former she she's a former nun, and so she's been able to um, to speak to me about my faith experiences in mm-hmm. ways um, you know that that someone else may not have someone else may not have been able to really identify with all that, that I was experiencing, um, the way that, the way that she did. Um, but, but yeah, that, and it's something that I, that I still struggle with, uh, the emptiness of life. I, um, I find myself, I, I find myself really coming back to the, this idea that life has whatever meaning you give it. And life by itself doesn't have much meaning. Um, but we can find, we, we can find any meaning that, that we want to find Hmm. in life. Um, and that's, that's the, so I, I can, I can approach it in a very, uh, from a very depressed standpoint, and I can approach it from a hopeful standpoint. Um, the the depressed standpoint says there's nothing in life that has meaning. Um, the hopeful standpoint says I can I, I can give life whatever meaning I want to give it. Life can mm-hmm. either be empty, or it or it can be a search for beauty, a search for, uh, a, a search for, uh, like it, in developing these essays, this has been, um, really meaningful for me because I, I, hmm. I see this as a, a search for wisdom in the world around me. I see this as a convergence of my, you know, of, of my academic training and my religious upbringing converging together in this beautiful way that's allowing me to see, to see beauty in the world. Um, so that, that's, yeah, that, that's where I am. It's something that I, I really have benefited from. I've benefited from writing about these struggles. And if anyone else is, is, uh, feels that they could describe themselves as cosmically depressed, (laughs) um, then, then certainly, uh, 
check out this writing. Let me know what you think. Um, it's a, it, it can be a very crushing uh, place to be, but it can also it, it can be a, a generative place to be. It can be a, a creative place to be, um, because if 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 I find myself seeing through the sources of meaning that that other people seem to be clinging to, if I find myself seeing through those things, then it opens up. You know, it it opens up my ability to see meaning, um, in, in other ways, you know, uh, so that, yeah, that, uh, does that, does that kind of make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's really, I think that's really wonderful. Um, (laughs) yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. so you are very, um, you're very open, you're very vulnerable and you're, and you're writing and you're, and you're speaking with me now. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I really, I, I think that's the, the best part and the most meaningful thing of deconstructing or whatever is, is reaching a place of honesty with yourself. Um, um, how do you feel, uh, really just in light of, in light of all the things we've talked about, um, how, how do you, how do you feel about, um, where you are? Um, I, Sometimes I ask people that I know are um, that are like active in a church, or I still identify as Christian. And the way I would the way I would mm-hmm. phrase this question is, "Why do you stay, um, mm-hmm. despite the trauma you may have experienced or the things you no longer believe?" Um, and you're right. you 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 talk even now, but um, you mentioned you mentioned just a moment ago that that. Um, life the meaning in life is where you where you find it and where you um where you choose to see it um so how do you feel about how how do you feel about that now and um i know you 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 did answer that a little bit um so let me uh, laser in the question a little bit more and ask uh sort of how you feel about um the other the overall sort of christian community do you feel like you relate to them or not and as far as your friends or family um how is that part of your life um, proceeding? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, uh, I two. I guess two things really. The the. So there's why do I stay in my you know in my church or my faith community? For me personally, the reason that I stay there is because of the the, the community ministry. Um, I, I don't see other groups in my community doing the type of, of social justice work that, that this faith community is doing. So that, that really is the reason I stay there. Um, and, and as far as the Christian community in general, um, I, I, I am, I, I've heard various people talk about how may, maybe there are people who have an inclination, just a natural inclination toward theological discourse or theological. <laughs> yeah. And if that's, if that's true, if, you know, if, if this is just a type of person who is into God, uh, yeah. then I think just one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, count me and in that one me, too. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> I just really, I really like thinking about theology. I really like um, talking to whatever God might be out there and imagining whatever God might be out there. Um, I, I, I'm just into it. Uh, and it's a personal thing for me. Um, I do not, I really don't consider myself to be, um, well, evangelical, you know, I don't really consider myself to like, I, I don't witness, I don't try to bring people into my faith. It's a personal thing for me. Um, but I, I, I would certainly look to help someone open themselves up to a new way to, of imagining God, uh, whether that be imagining God if they've never imagined God before or imagining a new type of God. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, so for me, it's, it's a very personal thing um, that the reason that I stay engaged with the Christian community, um, it's very personal. Christianity in particular, I've had this thought multiple times, like, you know, why, why Christianity? Why, why am I staying with this religion as opposed to any other? Um, and for me, it's just, it, I, I find it to be part of our common language yeah. in the U.S., uh, you know, at least in my, you know, in, in my area here in Pittsburgh, um, I find it to be a language that people know. Mm -hmm. And it's some, you know, it, it allows me to connect with people um, in a way that maybe I wouldn't if I came out of the gate, you know, that, well, there, there are just a lot of, there are a lot of people who may just close off a relationship um, if I, you know, if I would come out of the gate saying like, well, I'm a Buddhist or, you know, I, you know, yeah. name any religion basically <laughs> yeah. for Christianity. and that's not a healthy thing. That's not a healthy response. Um, but it's it, like, it's in the water in my community. Christianity mm -hmm. is in the water. Um, so I, I, my approach is like, rather than, um, Rather than throwing out Christianity, is there a way for me personally to reimagine Christianity um, in a way that matches what I see in the world, in a way that matches what I find what what I find to be um, inspiring and exciting about uh, about the work that's being done in my community? What I find to be the most true. Uh, based on my experience in the world. Um, so that that's really why I stay. I, um, I, I don't describe myself as, I don't describe myself really as, as any, anything in terms of religion. Mm -hmm. If I, you know, if I'm, uh, meeting someone, I wouldn't really describe myself as a Christian, but I also wouldn't describe myself as, anything else. You know, I, I, I think, I, I think Jesus like was real dope, you know, <laughs> maybe that's the best way uh, to describe it. <laughs> to say. Yeah. Um, and his life was a cool pattern. Um, but I, I don't really know. 
I guess a, another part of it is that I don't really know what Christian means anymore. Yeah. I it, it means so many different things to so many different people. Sure. Yeah. Um, so so yeah. D- does that does that answer sort of oh, answer the question? Yeah, that was a again a, a great response. <laughs> um, great. Yeah, I I I I've just loved all the different things you've shared. I think it's um, really great how you've um, how you've taken your your experience, your background, um, and in a lot of ways, really, um, you've really made it serve the purposes that you need in, in this point mm-hmm. in your life. Um, mm-hmm. And I think your your writing is is really wonderful. And I do encourage people to oh, sure. um, to go and and read it, especially if you have any um, and, and if you have any experience with. Uh, um, existential crisis or, or depression, um, you're gonna, you're gonna find something that, uh, that will resonate with you, um, there. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today. Where can people read your work? Where can they find you online? Absolutely. So my website is elizabethjeffreeswrites.com and you can find the blog, how to stay alive, which deals, uh, I write there about, uh, my, cosmic depression, um, which is an original phrase. My, my psychologist coined that phrase. It's <laughs> a good one. For me. <laughs> uh, but, but you can find my writing there and you can also contact me through the blog. Also on Twitter at EP Jeff. You can find me there. Great. Uh, thank you so much, mm-hmm. Elizabeth, for joining me today. It was really great talking to you. Thank you so much. It was an honor. God, what are we doing? We can't live this way forever. We gotta make ourselves some money. We'll be thrown out with the bathwater.